say that Memorial Day weekend uh, was when we resumed gathering in person uh, last year in 2020 as pandemic hit uh, and COVID kind of shut everything down and, and gave us a brief pause. Uh, we came back in person on Memorial Day weekend uh, to multiple gatherings. We started with three and then consolidated real quickly down to two uh, and have really held this Saturday evening gathering for in two weeks what will be a year uh, and we'll sunset that at the one-year marker and and we'll see kind of what the Lord does if uh, with something that comes back uh, down the road or not but in that uh, I, I will say that I think the the prevailing feeling about this past year plus has been one of like this is a, a difficult year and COVID's been really hard and there's a lot of really kind of frustration based things that come out of that uh, and I don't disagree with that at all uh, however I will say that in all things even things that we see most naturally as disappointing frustrating or difficult uh, we're also simultaneously witnessing the Lord do great and glorious things at all times. And so sometimes we, we have a tendency to forget that. We're, we're kind of prone to be pessimistic and uh, not see how God is at work. But uh, I think one of the most exciting things for me personally over this past year has been uh, on Saturday evenings watching the Lord work in, in kind of an entirely different context than what we're used to. Uh, it's, you know, kind of the end of the day. The sun is setting. It's a more intimate crowd, right? Everything, is, everything just has a different feel and flavor to it than what Sunday morning has. And, and I think in that, it's been a really great opportunity for us to worship the Lord in a way that is different and unique than what maybe you have been used to in the past. And so God's, God's used that for the sake of His glory. Uh, he's also in that allowed us to gather together as a church and that we were able to kind of like pivot and adjust and, and have uh, really glorious time over this past year watching God work in the context of his church despite all that was going on in the world around us. And so uh, praise the Lord for that. I just, I just want to say we're, we're super thankful about it uh, in that you have this week and next week and then you don't come here on Saturday night for a while. Okay? Amen? Second, uh, second summer then kind of ushers itself in right after that. So that, that following weekend, we'll have single Sunday gathering. That's Memorial Day weekend. And then the week that follows will, will be in June, right? So Memorial Day that Monday and then June. And, and so uh, everything kind of gets going fast and furious. A couple, couple things I want to mention about that. Uh, June 9th, which is not the Wednesday after Memorial Day, but the next Wednesday, we'll begin what we call Summer Nights. We've, we've now done this for four or five years. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to sort of consolidate a lot of our teaching schedules. So uh, if you kind of come here and are looking for a place to plug in throughout the year, uh, typically we're pushing you to some variety of smaller groups that meet throughout the week. And so we have Saturday morning Bible studies. We have midweek Bible studies. We have small groups that meet in homes. We have uh, small groups that meet here. We have Sunday school that meets here. And so uh, one of our goals in the summertime is to try to kind of condense that to some degree and, and press people together in a context where instead of you spending the bulk of your time with the same, you know, eight to ten people here and kind of knowing faces and maybe some names beyond that, uh, we want you to kind of spend time with 
50, 60, 70, 80 people in, in some context, and over the course of 10 weeks in the summer, use that as an opportunity to learn who those people are and get to know one another on a deeper level. And so uh, what we do on Wednesday nights, 6 to 6.30, uh, we make a whole bunch of protein, meat, right? We, put, we grill it out. We have it. Uh, we grill some way longer than what is righteous and good so that Carol can eat too. Uh, just burn the heck out of that hot dog. It's like a hot dog, hamburger, same thing. I don't know. It's at the point that you eat it, it's not either one of those things anymore. It's like a dog frisbee. But in that, you know, you want well done, you want medium rare, anything in between. We're going to just kind of press all that out, give you a half hour. Uh, it's not really about the food, but we eat food, right? So you can get here, kind of relax a little bit. You don't have to focus on what am I going to make for dinner. Uh, and Eat something, sit with people, get to know one another, and then uh, we spend about 45 minutes teaching the Bible after that. Kind of interactive, we set you at tables uh, so that you can talk, and, and I want to just say it this way so that it doesn't scare any of you. But you don't have to talk, right? So if you're real introverted and you're like, oh, that sounds terrifying, I don't want to do that. You can, you can kind of sneak in and sneak out. You don't have to be super talkative in those environments. We're not going to put you in a place that's really horrible for you. Uh, the idea is that we're going to make it a conducive environment for you to build relationships and friendships with people that ultimately you ought to be in relationship and friendship with because we're local church of God, right? And so uh, that's coming starting June 9th, and, and it's going to run every Wednesday uh, except for the Wednesday that we have day camp near the end of the month of June. We'll, we'll let you know when that is, uh, you know, really well. Make sure it's coming. Uh, and, and in that, you can be there 6 o'clock, eat with us, and study the Bible. We'll have simultaneously adults, teens, kids, all happening in the context of the facility. And so uh, bring the whole family, come out. There'll be a nursery as well. We're, we're just going to uh, really worship and glorify the Lord together. And so uh, that and then the... Week of June 21st to 25th is our kindergarten through going into sixth grade day camp. And so I, I want you to mark that down as well. I'm, I'm looking around. I know a lot of you don't have like kindergarten through sixth graders. Uh, Don, none of those right now, right? Uh, but in that, uh, doesn't mean you can't invite some people, right? Invite some people, get the word out, let people know about that. Uh, that's, that's really one of the most effective weeks of the year in, in intensive relationship building and Bible teaching for young people both within and outside of our church context. And so I uh, would love for them to be a part of that. All right, that's the housekeeping. Why don't you pray with me and let's, let's study the Bible together for some time tonight. All right. Heavenly Father, uh, just grateful for who you are and the opportunity to worship you. That, that we come together uh, here for the purpose of worshiping and glorifying your name. And, and so we pray that as we study your word tonight, that your spirit would move in such a way that makes it clear to us, give us the sense, make it uh, something that we understand well, and that it would, uh, in that understanding, press us to a deeper knowledge, affection, and love for who you are, uh, cause us to want to worship and glorify you more and more. Uh, as every day we seek to know you and know the power of your crucifixion and resurrection for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, John chapter 19, if you have a Bible. If you don't have one, grab one of those black ones in front of you. Thousand, page 1083, 84, somewhere in there. Uh, 
John chapter 19, we're now at kind of the culminating point of John's gospel. And it took us a while to get there. We, we began this series at the beginning of the year. Uh, and just so we're going to kind of slowly walk through John's gospel. And as it kind of gets to the climax, we're going to start to accelerate into that time. And so uh, we now look at John 19, which is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The, the centerpiece of all of human history marked in this chapter. Uh, in fact, let me, let me start with this, because, because here's the plan tonight. We're just going to read John 19, uh, and, and I'll kind of pause, read a few verses, we'll pause, we'll kind of make some observations about it, and then we'll read a few more verses and sort of get to the cross itself. And then I want to point out a couple things that happens that John records while Jesus is actually on the cross, which I think is really a really significant thing. Um, but, but in this, here's, here's what I'll say. Uh, typically, I think in the American church, as it is right now, uh, and in most formats, like we sit in uh, here tonight, and, and will again tomorrow morning, the expectation uh, in some ways, and, and I'm going to use that word in a negative sense here, like the, the poor expectation and uh, hope is that someone like me is going to come and give you uh, out of the text, some kind of profound look or uh, interesting idea that you can kind of salivate on and go, oh man, I've never seen that before, or that's so clever, or I can't believe he came up with that. In fact, there's, there's almost like a, uh, I feel it at times, like a pressure, and, and fortunately, by the grace of God, because you guys are a good church, like I don't feel this often, but I'll just tell you, like there's a, there's a pressure, right, to be like brilliant, right? Like, oh man, he just he just says things in ways that I've never understood before, or he just is so funny and so entertaining, and he just has this way of kind of making things work. And, so, and like, I'm just not that a lot of times, and I'm okay with that. Uh, and, and maybe sometimes I am. My wife tells me that when she's in a good mood. Uh, nobody else does. Fine. Okay. Bring it up. Whatever. You laugh at something. No? All right. Fine. Whatever. It's fine. It's fine. Here's why it's fine. Because, because the Apostle Paul who writes like half the books in the New Testament, right, is, is notably, I, I think outside of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul might be the smartest man who ever walked the earth, all right? And, and like, I'm not trying to blow smoke, I just, I, like, he's super well-educated, he's brilliant, God uses him to write 13 books in the New Testament, right? So here's, here's what the Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth, who Here's, here's their issue. Here's the context of what he's going to write. Uh, they are following him thinking he's great, right? And so factions have kind of developed in the church because they've, they've said, some of them went, oh, I follow Peter, and some of them said, I follow Paul, and some of them said, I follow Apollos, and some of them, are, they're kind of like warring with who's the best person to teach them in the best and the most clever and fun way. And Paul, writing to them, says this. He says, when I came to you, Brethren, brothers and sisters, I didn't come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. In fact, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that, listen to this, so that your faith 
would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Most intelligent man, Christian, who ever lived, and here's his argument. Listen, I don't need to be smart. I don't need to be wise. I don't need to be persuasive in my speech. What I ultimately need to do is come and preach to you Jesus Christ, and then what did it say? Him crucified. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ, Him crucified. The centerpiece of the gospel was that we believe in a Savior who was crucified for us and resurrected from the dead. And so Paul, the entire basis of his ministry is, listen, I'm not coming to give you some like flavorful, exciting, entertaining speech. I just want you to hear about Jesus Christ crucified so that you might have your faith rest on the power of God, not on the wisdom of men. And so in that light, here's what we're going to do tonight. We're just going to read John 19 and watch how Jesus Christ is crucified and why this is so vital and important, especially to John, the author of this gospel message. It's been the centerpiece when everything that's building up to this going to happen here in John 19. In fact, one more thing, and then, and then we'll jump into this text and really kind of read a big portion of it. John's entire message, we've said again and again and again and again, if you, if you don't take anything out of this whole series, I hope, I pray that you get this theme, right, that John is writing so that more than anything else, you would know who Jesus is, right? He's writing about Jesus' identity, that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And, right, what's the piece that goes with it? And in that believing, you have eternal life in his name. What's the path to eternal life? It's believing in the name of Jesus. Now, now here's the thing. As Jesus is going to profess over and over and over again in the gospel accounts, that is dependent upon him being crucified. You having eternal life in the belief in his name, you placing faith in Jesus and that giving you eternal life is dependent upon Jesus dying on a cross for your sins. And, and don't trust my word for it, right? He says this over and over and over and over again in the gospel accounts. John 3, verse 14 and 15. He's talking to Nicodemus. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Right? That's, that was a serpent made out of bronze, hung on a post, so that the people who were cursed would be made well. Same thing, right? So whoever believes in him, the Son of Man, lifted up, will have eternal life. John chapter 8. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, again, same imagery, right? Then you will know that I am He and do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Gets even more clear. John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? Lays down his life for the sheep. A few verses later, he says, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one's taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This is the commandment I received from the Father. Very next couple chapters, he says, answering 
the disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man, that's him, to be glorified. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Goes on a couple verses later and says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Even last week we looked in John 18, Peter, remember, is getting ready to fight when Jesus is arrested, and he tells Peter, put the sword in the sheath, the cup, his coming crucifixion, taking on God's wrath for sin, the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And so again and again and again and again, John's gospel is going to come back to this very concept that all meets its crescendo here, John 19, that I'm going to die so that you and I might have life. All right, so, so keep that kind of right here. That's the point. Let's, let's read it and watch kind of how this happens. All right, so if you remember, we left off, end of John 18. Jesus is hanging out with a guy named Pilate who is over the province of Jerusalem and Judea as a Roman governor. He is now putting Jesus on trial. Uh, there's, there's kind of this tension that he thinks maybe Jesus is innocent, uh, but really it doesn't matter to him. What matters is how do I keep the Jewish crowds okay with me so that they don't want to kill me, but while doing so, make sure that I keep peace and keep taxes flowing in so that Rome doesn't get upset with me, right? So he's, he's in this tender balance. His whole purpose with Jesus is let's, let's figure out what's going to walk forward the best in this balance. I could care less if I need to kill this man or not. It says in verse 1 of John 19, Pilate then took Jesus and he scourged him. So in this, uh, he, he kind of figures out maybe there's a way that I could provide some punishment less than death that would both satisfy the chief priests and allow the crowds to still have this guy released and everything will kind of go about peaceably. Uh, in, in case you don't understand, a, a scourging was a horrific act. It killed many people uh, because of the nature of it. What they would do is they take ropes, tie it to a whip with a wooden handle, and inside of the ropes they'd weave in things like glass and rocks and stones. They would tie someone to a post and begin to hit their bare back, exposing blood, muscle, bones, ligaments, everything you can imagine as a way to break them down physically and emotionally into something less than human. Not only that, it says the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And they put a purple robe on him, probably one of the soldiers' robes, and mocking, and they begin to come up to him and say, Hail the king of the Jews and give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and he said to them, this is the Jewish crowd, Behold, I'm bringing him out so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Now remember, uh, Pilate is not looking to incite some type of riot. And at this point in time, all he can figure out is Jesus isn't all that interested in inciting a riot either. As he's asking him if he's a king, Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. It's not of this realm. I'm not interested in warring for my kingdom. Certainly he would have known that even when his disciple Peter began to fight, Jesus did what? He put Peter down and he fixed the guy's ear, right? Like words coming to him quickly. And so he comes forth to the Jewish leaders and goes, hey, I don't, I don't find any guilt 
in this man, again, still kind of torn between this reality that he also needs to satisfy Rome. So watch, watch how it continues. It says, Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and other officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Again, I, I think, and you can, maybe you can disagree with this theory, but I think what's happening here is, is Pilate's playing a political game. Right? Like, I, I don't want to be responsible for this, again, because I've heard about this guy, and the crowds uh, followed him in and cried out Hosanna to him, and the accusation is that he claims to be a king. He's, he's got to be important to people. I don't want to put him to death if it would stir up the crowds further. If you want him crucified, you crucify him. Now, in this, they know, and Pilate knows, what the Jews answer him and say. We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Now that's a different word than king as we used in John 18. And so what it says in verse 8 here is, Therefore when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So Pilate kind of sees the escalating nature of this uh, and recognizes that now there's, there's a new thing that's happened, which is Jesus is accused of claiming himself to be the Son of God, which interferes with the prime role and number one position that Caesar was meant to hold in the Roman Empire. And so, not claiming himself to just be a Messiah figure, but also claiming himself to be divine in place of or above Caesar, now starts to kind of tip these scales in a way that's really difficult for Pilate to figure out what to do. And so, here's, here's what happens. He entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, you don't speak to me? Do you know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? So he's trying to figure out what the best thing to do is and, and then Jesus answers him this way. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now let me just... Just observe one thing about this. The gospel message, right, as we've said, that you believe Jesus as the Son of God and believing you would have eternal life in his name. Now, now I, would, I would say what it looks like to, to know you believe is an entrusting of yourself to the authority of God. Right? So, so ultimately, as somebody who believes in Jesus, it means that the authority of my life is no longer self. It's been given over to him. Amen? You with me there? So he is the authority. Now, the way that you know if you're submitted to an authority doesn't happen when you are in hearty emotional agreement with all the things the authority does, it happens when you emotionally are in opposition to those things. Are you still with me? Let me, let me give you an illustration to kind of help you with this. Um, my kids 
sit under my authority sometimes, right? They're older now, and so they don't believe that more often. Uh, However, here's what happens. Every couple days, uh, we have this kind of recurring discussion. You just get ready for this one, okay? You got to shower or bathe. Ah, no, no, no. You, you have to take a, sh- like, I can see lines of dirt on your face and your neck, and you come inside a five-foot radius. I can smell you. You have to shower. I don't want to shower. All three of them consistently, at least twice a week, this happens, this conversation, right? And, and here is frequently where this conversation goes and ends. Listen, Clara, Lydia, Josiah, not Whitney, Make that, mark that. Don't get me in trouble. Do you trust me? Yes. Do I want what is best for you? Yes. You stink and you're dirty. And so you need to be cleaned off. It is good for you. And I know you don't want to, but you need to trust that I know I want what's best for you. Okay, right? And so th- that's on a good day. Uh, good day is okay, and then they do it. There's going to be other days. Trust. It, three hours later, you're still you're thinking, like, I can waterboard you in this bath. Just don't do that. Or don't tell anybody, right? And so uh, in that, here's, here's how authority works. When what you can see doesn't make sense, and what you can see is painful, And what you can see looks difficult, but you know that that's what God intends. You trust his authority over your life. That's what it means to trust the Lord. Watch how Jesus demonstrates this. He's just moments away from carrying his cross down the street and being nailed to it. Moments away. And, and the man standing before him says, I have the authority to release you. And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless God gave it to you. Perfect trust of the Lord. And so, and so out of this, uh, you see maybe this kind of tinge of change in Pilate's life right here. It says, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And so now there's kind of a new press on him. He's going, "Ah, I just, I don't know, this guy doesn't seem to be defending himself. I just want to let him go. There's this whole other thing going on with his wife. It's not for tonight. Uh, In this He shows up, and the Jewish leaders go, listen, you release this man, and we're writing the emperor and telling him, you're releasing people who claim to be against Caesar. And the emperor happens to be harsh, and the emperor happens to kill his governors a lot, and the emperor doesn't seem to care about whether or not this guy was innocent. He just wants peace and taxes. And so now, Pilate has a dilemma because his own life and career is at stake. And so it picks up in verse 13, and one who maybe even has some conviction ends up with this. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at the place 
called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was, therefore, the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, sometime between 9 a.m. and noon. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And so they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So they handed them over to them to be crucified. Now that's a, that's a wild response. We have no king but Caesar, right? True, uh, but insane to think that they're so against the Lord in this. It says, now that they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And even then, enraged and arguing, Pilate answers them and says, what I've written, I have written. Now, here's where I want to finish with the rest of our time tonight. The next seven, eight verses is John's description of Jesus on the cross. So we've now arrived, we're at the cross, they're putting Jesus on the cross, criminal on his right, criminal on his left, all done to fulfill prophecy. And then uh, John's going to describe what happens in the next eight verses. And uh, there's three, three things in particular he's going to know. And, and I just, I want you to see them uh, as, as what they are and what they teach us because he records the actual time that Jesus is on the cross detailing three things that are different from the other three gospel accounts and what they detail in their time uh, observing Jesus on the cross. And so all of the different writers kind of have different perspectives of what Jesus says and does on the cross that are uh, monumentally important. He, he only says a few things that are recorded, uh, but none of them record them exhaustively. They just kind of mention some of them. And so I want you to see what John is particularly focused on in the cross. Remember? Everything's led up to this. Everything is about this point now. What's, what's he pointing out? Well, here's, here's first. Verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now, so they, they've put this purple robe on him. Remember the outer garments that didn't belong to him to begin with. Purple's really valuable product and uh, really important fabric in that time was worth a lot of money and so they take that off and they uh, take it and they split it up into four parts apparently four soldiers and they so they decide this is the best way to go about it so that they could have something of value for this crappy work that they're doing right and so then the tunic it says now the tunic was seamless woven in one piece and so they said to another let us not tear it but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now, here's my question. Why? Right, like we're, we're in the most important moment in human history, 
And John's talking about what the Roman soldiers did with Jesus' clothing. Does that seem kind of secondary to you? Just come on, come on, entertain me a little bit, right? It just seems like maybe there's more important things going on. Except that, here's, here's what he says. This was to fulfill the scripture. Here's what I think John sees as so important. That, that Jesus, at no point ever in his earthly ministry, is outside of the control and the sovereign will of God. Amen? That, that Jesus is fulfilling everything that was planned and intended of him from the beginning. In fact, that verse that John quotes here, that they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, that comes from Psalm 22, verse 18, uh, where that is noted. Now, you may know that Psalm 22 is when Jesus is going, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And so, so out of this, Jesus is drawing, that's, that's what he says, on the cross, right? He's drawing the attention of anyone who might hear to the fact that he is there, not at the hands of evil priests and evil men, not at the hands of Pilate, the Roman governor, not at the hands of four Roman soldiers who nailed him to a cross. He's there on his own initiative because he has the authority to lay his life down and he has the authority to take it up again. That the cross was always the plan. Always the plan. In fact, Jesus on the cross is the perfect display of God's attributes in their full cooperation. In fact, I think it is the most perfect display in all of human history of who God really is. Let me, let me help you with what I mean by that. We think of God, and we think of God as, as things like gracious and loving and merciful and forgiving, and we think of God as one who is righteous and holy and just and does not let sin go unpunished. And it's in the cross that the, the wrath of God and the righteousness of God and the holiness of God and the justice of God poured out against sin meets the love and mercy and grace and forgiveness of God in His Son, the perfect and intended and willing substitute for you and I. That it all is about the cross and that was from the get-go the plan. That's why the garments are divided. That's why John notes it. He's noting over and over and over again that all this came to be because that had always been the intention. It was done to fulfill the Scriptures because the Scriptures had said for generations that this was going to happen. From the sending them out of the garden, right, and the wage of sin being death, to Cain and Abel, right, and the, the sacrifice of an offering given, right, to Abraham and Isaac and a ram in the thicket, to the day of the Passover, to the instituting of the law and sin offerings and guilt offerings, again and again and again, you just have these pictures of the coming fulfillment that was going to happen in Christ on the cross. And so, of course, John looks and goes, hey, look at they're doing this, they're dividing my outer garments. And then he's hearing Jesus go, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's thinking through and reciting the psalm in his head and going, that's in the psalm. 800 years ago they said this was going to happen. 
They knew that the, he, he knew he didn't do this by accident. Now, now then, look at this. Verse, verse 25, it says, but standing by the cross of Jesus. Now, if the, the garment thing seems like a weird detail, this, this seems almost more non-material to the story. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw that his mother and the disciple whom he loved, now that's John who's writing this, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Jesus uh, looks at John and goes, you got to take care of her now. This is now your mom. So, so most likely Joseph, Jesus' earthly father's dead. Uh, and so Mary uh, needs somebody who is going to make sure that she's okay. That would have been the role or task of Jesus. We remember that back in the wedding in Cana, right, in John 2. And so out of this, he says, behold, this is your mother. Now, now here's, here's where I think John sees this as so vital and so important. Is that Jesus, even on the cross, demonstrates for us what selfless love looks like. Like, again, think, of it, think about it this way. Um, a few weeks ago, back the, the Sunday before Easter, I was playing basketball. Uh, we, we did like pickup ball here. We, I just shouldn't have done that uh, because I just am not, I'm older than I think I am. And so uh, think of how old that makes some of you. Uh, but in this, right, like, I just really felt like I could still play basketball to my liveliest ability, and I couldn't, and so I jumped, and I came down, and I, I sprained my ankle fairly badly, uh, and, and here's what happened. We'd only been playing, <laughs> we'd only been playing like 10 minutes. Uh, that's all it took, and I went down and crumbled down to the ground in like a lot of pain. In fact, I don't remember a time in my life recently that I've been in as much pain as I was right then, and you know what happened? I didn't care about anybody but myself. In fact, in the moments to follow, uh, one of the other guys, volunteer, kind of like came alongside and was like, I'll help you, I'll help you, you know, and, and so they like kind of pick you up and I have my like sweaty, disgusting, smelly armpit just like hanging around this person's neck. And normally, you wouldn't do that, right? Like in, a, in an average day, if you are as sweaty as, and I know I said I was only 10 minutes in, trust me, it, it was that bad. Uh, you're that sweaty, you're just not going to let somebody like stick their neck and face like into this region, right? Like that's not kind and polite. I didn't even give that a second thought. In fact, I was willing to like grab his face and put it farther in there if it would have propped me up more. Like I, it doesn't matter to me right now. Just get me to where I need to go. Not only that, uh, Kale is going, hey, I'll drive you to your house. I'll, get, just, I'll go get my truck. I'll pull it around. Again, like, I'm this far away. In an average day, if I'm like that, I'm not sitting in somebody else's clean car. I didn't care. I didn't even apologize for how much sweat and stench went into his car over the next few minutes. In fact, the only thing I was thinking in the car is like, why is he driving over every bump? It hurts so bad, right? Like, I'm not even happy with you for this courteous ride you're giving me, right? Like, I, there were, there were, eight of us playing basketball, which is how many you need to play basketball. I didn't give a second thought to the fact that I just kind of left the rest of them high and dry. They don't have enough guys to play. 
doesn't matter to me. Nothing that would normally be important to me mattered at all, right? Only self. Because that's what pain does. Right? Like we are, we are at our selfish, most selfish points in deep and debilitating pain, are we not? Right? Like every woman who's had a baby, come on, like every man who's held the hand of a woman who's having a baby, right? Like they are not thinking about you in those contractions, right? Like they're just thinking they could maybe break your hand. And so in this, imagine Jesus, nails in his hands and his feet, having to lift himself on those nails for every breath he takes. And to in that excruciating, that's where that word comes from, excruciating pain, to hold himself up long enough to look at his mom and look at his disciple and pass her off in selfless love and care demonstrates how deeply he cares about you and I. How much he loves us, even on the cross. And then, and then he finishes with this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on the, in a branch of hyssop, and they brought it up to his mouth. He gets enough of it so that he can speak one last phrase in verse 30 says, therefore, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus dies on the cross and he proclaims, it's finished. The work is finished. All that I had come to do is finished. The redemption of of mankind is finished. The drawing of all men to myself is finished. Every priest, this is Hebrews 10. Let's close with this. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. There is the whole role of religion. It was then, as it is today, that someone would come and they would do something. They'd work harder and harder and harder, thinking that it would take away, it would absolve their sins. And it never can. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God because it was finished. You sit down when it's finished, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Here's the beauty of the cross. In it, the work has been finished. You and I are sanctified, are being perfected, are made right with God in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He paid it in full. All of it. All sins 
for all time, paid for in His atoning sacrifice. All of the debt, all of the wage of sin that is owed to God from my life, from your life, and from anyone else who has faith in Him has been taken and put upon the cross and it was finished. It was completed. It was done. Why? So that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believing you would have life, spiritual, eternal life in His name. Pray with me. Lord, I'm so thankful for life in your name. I pray that we are a people. Everyone sitting here tonight, everyone who will come tomorrow, those who will hear online are people who recognize the finished work of the cross. That in it there is life in your name because you were crucified for us, paid the debt for us. And you call us, you you ask us to respond to that in faith, that we would believe in you, that we would trust you, that we would lay our lives down to you as authoritative over it. And so I, I pray that for those of us who have made that decision in our life and know you, that this would be a refreshing reminder that we worship Christ and Him crucified. That's the good news of the gospel. And so our our faith, our life rests not on the persuasive words of wisdom, but on the power of God. And for those who have never made that choice, have never placed their faith in you, that they would know they, they don't need to stand offering sacrifices daily, thinking that there's some work that they could do, some way that they could be made right with you. They just need to believe in the finished work of the cross. Let them repent from their self-centered ways and place their faith in you. Pray that that would happen in the power of your spirit and in the glory of your name. In the name of Jesus. Why don't we stand and rejoice, sing one more song with us before we close.